Hello, and welcome to The Dirt. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this is a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human history. What are we talking about this week? Well, it's less of a what and more of a who. We're telling the story of Richard III. Oh, okay. The uh, direct-to-DVD sequel. The one that came after Richard II, The Richening. Rich hard with a vengeance. <sighs> Live free or die rich hard. Too rich, too furious. <laughs> Are you done? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not I that. It's not that. Uh, Richard III was king of England from 1483 to 1485. And despite his short reign, he was the subject of one of William Shakespeare's plays, and fairly recently, the subject of a whole lot of press, as his previously forgotten burial place was uncovered underneath the pavement of a parking lot in Leicester, UK. I do believe that I saw that play in college, and the titular Richard was played by one of our patrons. Our very own patron, Elizabeth Shaw. Yes. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hello and thank you. You did a very excellent job playing You were Richard. great. Um, that's pretty much all I remember. Yep. Okay. So coming into this, the two things I knew about Richard III is that one of our fl- friends played him in a play, and he looks like Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Both of those things are true. Okay, so... Let's let's get to the the real history. Let's figure out where we are in time because England has a really long history and kind of a convoluted monarchy with lots of different families taking power at various points. So just so we have some idea who's descended from whom and we can sort of place Richard within the context of the English monarchs that people are most likely to know about. So Richard III was the last king of the House of York, um, a member of the the family that fought on one side of the the uh, War of the Roses, uh, also the last member of the Plantagenet dynasty. So the Plantagenets originated in France and held the English throne, starting with good old Henry II, who was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, and that dynasty started in 1154. So. We're in the 1400s. Richard wasn't supposed to be king. His brother, Edward IV, was on the throne, but Edward died in 1483, and neither of his two sons were old enough to be named king. So their uncle Richard was named Lord Protector, so effectively uh, a king regent, until his nephews came of age. However, scandal reared its ugly head, and before uh, young Edward V could be crowned, his parents... So one of his nephews, right? Yes, the elder of Edward his two the, nephews, Edward V. Yeah, I okay. wish they would pick some different names. Well, and then was the other one named Edward VI? Because I went to a, I went to school with a kid who was a junior and his little brother was the third. Oh, golly. What about like a, a Colin or a, a Jacob or a... They don't all or a the, James. They don't, same, same. Well, yeah. Oh, well, we As learned, we learned, we last learned week. that. Uh, no, there's plenty of Jameses in English history. Oh. Too many. Too many Edwards and Jameses and Henrys. Yeah. Or like a Bob or a a Steve. King Steve. King King Steve. Um, Okay. So before young Edward V, nephew of Richard III, could be crowned, his parents' marriage, so Edward IV and his wife, was declared bigamous. Not sure how. Didn't really wade into that history. Um, But... The point is that the young prince's eligibility for the throne was declared null and void. In June of 1483, an assembly of lords and commoners endorsed a oh. declaration to the effect of the eligibility for the throne is null for Edward V. Um, and they proclaimed Richard the rightful king. And so he stepped up. I almost said stepped up to the plate. Nope. Stepped up to the throne and began his reign as Richard III. He was crowned on July 6th, 1483. Oh, his younger brother was named Richard. So the young... Oh, come on. The young princes, Edward, and his younger brother, Richard, uh, they were not seen in public after August of of Richard III's coronation. And so accusations circled that the boys had been murdered on Richard's orders. So we'll come back to that. Okay. So Richard's reign was opposed by the Tudor family, the family that would later include Henry VIII and his daughter, Elizabeth I, patron of William Shakespeare. Henry, so he was a York 
This is Richard was a York. York V. Tudor? York V. Tudor, yes. Okay. So Henry VIII's father, Henry VII. <sighs> Where'd the Henrys come from? Look, we're not historians. We're archaeologists, and there's a really good oh reason God. for that. <laughs> so what? The Tudor army defeated <laughs> the York army, Richard III's army, at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, and Richard was right. killed, and Henry okay. became king. So Henry okay. Henry VII became king, starting okay. the reign of the Tudor family in England. And incidentally, this is also when the Middle Ages ended in England, although it's a historical designation, kind of arbitrary, and no one woke up the next day they and was like... flipped over their calendar? Yeah, like, and oh, it's like we're down in the Middle Ages today. Wow. Okay. And so the guy who beat Richard III, his kid... Was Henry VIII. Wh- was Henry VIII who had all the... Many, the, like, many wives the wife drama and one of his dead wives had elizabeth the first correct who was played by kate blanchett yes okay all right well that sorts british history oh yeah we got it incidentally august 22nd yesterday although yesterday 1485 was the day that uh richard the third died so our recording is timely so richard the third may have been the victim of some bad press because he had the misfortune of being the last king of one dynasty and then uh, everyone wanted to please the the incumbent dynasty. His physical appearance especially was made much of possibly because... That's cheap. It's a cheap shot. It is, and it's largely to do with... I mean, first of all, he did have some um, physical qualities that... Uh, that were exaggerated for sure, but um, we'll talk about it when we when we get to the the meat of this story. But um, there was this belief that a longstanding belief that that comes all the way from from antiquity that your external appearance has some reflection on your moral character, and so oh, um, Richard's physical appearance was portrayed often as twisted. So he had he had um, some minor scoliosis, and so one of his shoulders was higher than the other. And so the characterization of... And, and so scoliosis is, um, it's, a, it's like a disruption of the curvature of your spine? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's a... Like as, as you grow? It is. It, it doesn't... There are different kinds of scoliosis, and the kind that Richard had we'll, we'll get more into, but it would have okay. become more pronounced as he grew older. And um, okay. he didn't have any other... Like, according to chroniclers of the time, Richard had no other noticeable bodily deformities. There is... That's a way to state it. There is a German traveler, Nicholas von Poplau, who spent 10 <laughs> days in Richard's household in 1484 and describes him as... Uh, tall, lean, with delicate arms and legs, and also a great heart. So, I mean, while he oh. is alive and oh. while he is in power, descriptions of him are very favorable. And then once the Tudors are in power, um, the characterization of Richard III culminated in the way that Shakespeare portrays him in his writings as this physically deformed, spidery, uh, scheming Machiavellian villain. Um, although he is brave and very witty. He has a very sharp tongue, but he's just going around as this twisted hunchbacked villain committing all these murders and clawing his way to power. So um, Shakespeare portrays him in text as having a hunch, a limp, and a withered arm. Keep in mind, though, that Shakespeare's patron was Elizabeth I of the Tudors. And there still would be, like, there still would be residual beef after multiple generations? Oh, yeah. Because it's a consolidation of power thing. So it's to the extent that there was a scholar who um, had earlier, his name was Rouse, and had earlier, before the Tudor power switch, had portrayed Richard as, you know, as not particularly deformed and, and of, of great heart and all of this. He reversed his position during Henry VII's reign and portrayed Richard as a freakish individual who was born with teeth and shoulder length hair after having been in his mother's womb for two years and his body was stunted do it. stunted and distorted and he was slight in body and weak in strength. So he's like really piling it on there. Given that that's how much they 
they they piled it on uh, during Henry VII's reign. It probably, once uh, a couple generations had gone by and people didn't maybe so much remember Richard III as much, you know, just the common folk. Um, right. The idea of this caricature becoming recognized as the real person is, is I think, kind of what happened. Okay. So, oh, yeah. okay. But, I mean, I don't really know what to believe anymore about Richard III, and so it's time for science to come to the rescue. Oh, thank God. Okay. Thank you, science. It's archaeology oh. time. So after the, the battle uh, in which Richard III was killed, his body was taken to Leicester and buried without ceremony, because he lost, at Greyfriars Priory Church. And that church was supposedly destroyed during the reign of Henry VIII. Did somebody burn the pudding? <laughs> Did someone burn the pudding? <laughs> well, and he got mad and destroyed a church? Is that... No, I was saying it burnt down. Oh, I don't know how it... I don't know how it uh, was destroyed. Well, no, I like that. It's like, just like freaking out. <laughs> his his leg of lamb was, but hey, was overdone. hey, wait. Yep. There was like a, a thing happened. The Anglican church happened. Oh, uh, yeah. Could that have had something to do with the church being destroyed? Yeah, I mean, it probably wasn't a pudding and it probably had to do with the schism <laughs> between the two religions. You, yes. You you saw that in real time. You saw me put that together in real time. Again, not historians. <laughs> oh, man. Archaeologists. So, yes, a couple of giant upheavals happened uh, during the, the few hundred years after Richard III's death. So one of those things was that during the reign of Henry VIII, he parted ways with the Catholic Church because he wanted to get a marriage and old, blah, blah, blah. And he started the Anglican Church. And so that caused a whole lot of drama. And then um, during the English Reformation, which I believe was when the Protestants became a thing, Richard's original tomb monument, which may have survived the Greyfriars' destruction, was removed during this Reformation hubbub. And then, so his remains were just sort of lost for more than five centuries, and they were uh, believed to have been thrown into the river. Okay. So that's where we are. Enter, in 2012, the Richard III Society, who commissioned an archaeological excavation on a city council car park, which we call a parking lot, on the site once occupied by Greyfriars Priory Church. So when this story originally came out in 2012, when the press covered it, I was under the impression that the body had accidentally been found in a parking lot and no one had known where the body was. But actually what really... So the the first time I read it and they said they found it in a parking lot, I thought they meant like in someone's trunk. <laughs> well, that's definitely not what happened. <laughs> I know. I mean, what really happened was that the society commissioned this archaeological excavation, but the news sort of made it sound like the the skeleton was accidentally found, but really they just looked at old records and figured out where Greyfriars Priory Church once stood and then thought, oh, we should dig here, and then they dug there, and indeed, there was Richard. Yeah, they did, um, like, layered maps. And and then they did ground penetrating radar mm -hmm. and they're like, yep, something down there. And then they came back and just popped them on out. And it was very exciting. It was very exciting for the society. Uh, but right, he's kind of their very deal. straightforward. Yeah, much yeah. more straightforward than I had thought. And um, so they, you know, they excavated this individual, but then they had to prove since it had been 500 or so years, um, they had to prove that it was, in fact, Richard III. And they did this in a few different ways. So forensic studies. First of all, they did genetic testing of the DNA from the skeleton. They tested it against known descendants from uh, Richard's sister, who was named Anne and was sort of an overlooked royal, unless you're a British historian and super into that kind of thing. And if, we, and if you are, we love you and we respect you, but wow. Uh, so genetic testing of the DNA shows that the bones were indeed Richard III with a probability of 99.9994%. So this is 527 years after Richard's death, and it's the first gen genetic identification of a particular individual so long after their death. So that's neat. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. God bless the University of Leicester. They have a wonderful website that we will link to on our show notes. Yeah. Um, all about the osteology of the project. So 
here are the things that we learned from the skeleton. Even if, even if we weren't thinking that it was Richard III, here are the things that the bones can tell us. First of all, they came from an adult male aged between his late 20s and late 30s. And that, that jives because Richard was 32 when he died. Oh, man. From the length of the thigh bone, we can calculate that Richard would have stood about 5 foot 8, 174 centimeters for any uh, international listeners, if his back had been straight. However... The, tri- the scoliosis, which was markedly apparent on his spine, would have reduced his apparent height significantly, making him much shorter than the average man in the medieval period. So the, the largest mm-hmm. injury on the skeleton, and if you're sensitive to, to body, bodily injury triggers, now is a time to skip forward about 30 seconds, is the hole where part of his skull has been completely sliced away. This is at the lower That'll back of the it. skull. Yep. And this could only have been caused by a very large, very sharp blade wielded with some force. So they haven't proven exactly what kind of weapon caused this injury, but they speculate that it is consistent with a halberd or something similar. And uh, uh, it seems obvious, but an injury like this would have been fatal. And a, a halberd is a combined spear and battle axe. Yep. Which it's a long, pretty, it's a long metal. pole with a spear tip at the end, but then also at the end coming off of one side is an axe blade. That's a halberd. Yep. So when the body was first uncovered, there was a very pronounced curve in the spine visible, evidence of the scoliosis, which would have meant that Richard's right shoulder was noticeably higher than his left. And this type of scoliosis is known as idiopathic adolescent onset scoliosis. That's a lot of a lot of big words all at once. Idiopathic means that we're really not sure the reason for the development of the disorder, um, although there is probably a genetic component. The term adolescent onset indicates that he wasn't born with this deformity, but it developed after around the age of 10. So it's very possible that this would have been a progressive um, deformity continuing to get worse as Richard got older. So it would have put some pressure on his lungs. It may have caused him to have shortness of breath, but since he was out there leading a battle in 1485, uh, it clearly did not stop him from leading an active lifestyle, even if the battle did not go so well for him in the long run. Other wonderful forensic details. The skull shows worn molars indicating that Richard III ground his teeth. It's stressful being the king. Well, especially if you got all this other stuff going on. Yeah. People think that you killed your nephews. Yeah, all these political machinations going on. Yeah, I'd grind my teeth too. I grind my teeth now and I'm nowhere near royal. Soil samples from his grave showed that he had a gut infestation of parasitic roundworms. So that's fun. And isotope analysis of his ribs, and that's really cool. So the area where his, his gut once was, revealed the banquet that he had had before his death. And that food included peacock, heron, swan, and lots of wine. So right. I was kind of wondering, you know, this would have been his meal that he ate right before a big crucial battle. Peacock and swan are very royal foods. Like it's one of those things that's sort of codified in it used to be all over Europe, but I think, I mean, the England is one of the only countries now that still has a monarchy, but only the royalty can Apparently eat Apparently there are 24 others. Oh, golly. Okay. Mm-hmm. That shows me. Um, I don't know if they eat swans, though. Well, uh, I mean, the, the Queen of England can. I don't know if she does. You'd have to ask her. But, like, I can't imagine swan tastes great. Also, heron. They're both, like, mud, like, freshwater mud feeders. They don't eat mud. They eat things that eat that hang out in the mud. So I, I just sort of wonder if this was the type of food that Richard III ate all the time or if this was like a pre-battle like show of legitimacy and power, like he was having a banquet. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I, I don't know. The other yeah. thing that I get so nerdily excited about is that Richard III's teeth – as would any anyone's teeth from this this period, but this is just a really, really good example of it. Richard III's teeth show us what people's teeth looked like before forks were introduced into Europe. So we don't think about it, but uh, people didn't used to eat with forks the way that, that we 
do when we're being grown-ups. So the fork was introduced to England from Italy around the 18th century or maybe by the 17th century. Um, it took a while because its use was frowned upon as this like sissy continental affectation. So only fops and dandies brought oh, forks goodness. to the dinner table. And it was it was frowned on by the church initially as sort of a, a sign of too much easy living. <laughs> Like if you're eating okay. your food with, with a fork. So what people used to do was they'd have an eating knife and sometimes it was pretty much knife and spoon only. And they'd everyone would bring their own knife, sometimes spoon, to the table. And you would... BYOK. BYOK, bring your own knife. And and you'd spear things with your knife and, and chomp on them. You wouldn't cut your food. And, so when, when, I don't know how I eat I mean, it's just me. <laughs> like I said, it's the fork is the way we eat when we're being grownups. But anyway... When you have a fork, you cut your meat and and daintily place pieces into your mouth instead of spearing a chunk with your eaten knife and chomping at it. And so like any other muscles in our body, the jaw muscles don't develop as much when they are not used for lots and lots of chomping. There is a visible trend in the skeletal record of Europe and the Americas that shows a distinct trend toward the overbite caused by a lack of muscle definition in the lower jaw that is directly correlated with the advent of the fork. And so so this is in so this was in maybe as early as the 17th century in England. In England so, but earlier um, in Europe. Okay, okay. Well, so so can one track the um adoption of forks across geography and maybe i don't know class i bet you're saying like i bet you could depending on your depending on your skeletal sample because the thing about economic class is the less access you have to quality medical and dental care the less well your teeth are going to be preserved but i guess if the jaw at least is preserved like if you have enough skulls for a really good sample set across whatever class and geography you wanted to test yeah absolutely you could and it's not just forks. It's specifically dining implements that involve the cutting up of food into small pieces for conveyance to your mouth parts. The Chinese population developed the overbite 900 years before Europeans because of chopsticks. So a researcher uh, in the 70s named C. Loring Brace discovered this by comparing Chinese skulls that exhibited an overbite with the oldest known European skulls with this same dental abnormality. And there was this 900-year discrepancy in the age of the skulls. Usually what happens um, when you are not using chopsticks or forks is that your teeth, your top and bottom teeth, close edge to edge. Now, some people still have this. You know, not everybody has an overbite. Um, Some people have underbites. Like uh, genetics plays a part in this, absolutely. But typically before the fork, people's teeth closed edge to edge, meaning that like the top and bottom, I'm trying to do it now and talk and it's not... It's not working out. But the top and bottom teeth would meet instead of the top overlapping the bottom teeth, which is what happens when I close my mouth. I definitely have an overbite. Early Europeans eating, you know, way back, way, way, way back, eating raw fruits and vegetables and ripping meat from the bone with their hands um, would be exercising their jaw muscles a lot. And once they picked up the fork and began eating smaller, softer, bite-sized foods, there's less strain and stress on the jaw muscles. This, this appearance of the overbite in Europe is not really a gradual evolutionary trait the way that we think of evolutionary traits, but really it's, mm-hmm. it's an abrupt change brought on by sort of a systemic change in behavior. So that's really neat. Um, and that is so cool. And this just isn't just one guy's hypothesis based on one study of, of skulls. So in the early 2000s, a team of scientists at Harvard did an experiment on baby rock badgers which rock like, badger <laughs> rock badger of all the badgers <laughs> they are the most hardcore so some of these uh hardcore rock badgers were fed raw and dried foods so chompy very good for exercising the jaw yeah. while the other group was on a strict diet of soft cooked foods and so they found that the badgers raised on cooked food had approximately 10 percent less growth in their upper and lower jaws than the badgers eating the raw dried food so this isn't over any generations this is within oh the development of a single lifespan and baby rock badgers with overbites <laughs> we're gonna have to post a picture of a rock badger just because rock if we can find a baby one. Oh my goodness. Oh, Amber found one, everybody. 
Oh. Okay, we're definitely going to put that picture up. Oh. Okay, send me that badger. Oh, that's a Hyrax. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was a rock badger. They're actually closely related to elephants and manatees. I That I did know, but I didn't know that Hyraxes, otherwise known as Dossies, are rock badgers. I learned a thing. Huh. So we've gotten the evidence from Richard's skeleton. He wasn't nearly as physically twisted as Shakespearean biographers would have it. But did he kill the princess? We don't know. Short answer. Okay, give me the longer um, answer. We really don't know. So <laughs> I have to look this up. When when do you know when the Tower of London urn was found? I do not. Amber okay. Googles it. In 1674, there were some folks doing some remodeling on the Tower of London, and they found a wooden box that had two small human skeletons in it. Um, and so they, they buried, a, buried those bones uh, 10 feet under the staircase leading to the Chapel of the White Tower. They, they stayed there, and then in 1933, they were removed and examined by the archivist of Westminster Abbey, a man named Lawrence Tanner, a leading anatomist named Professor William Wright, and the president of the Dental Association, George Northcroft. So by measuring certain bones and teeth, they concluded the bones belonged to two children around the correct ages for the princes. So a bunch of the bones had been broken anyway because they had been... Because they had been jumbled around. Mishandled. Yeah. Yeah, and they were they were buried in, in basically just the trash because um, there were there were animal bones, so there are animal bones with them. So it seems that they just sort of cleaned it out and and put it over there. One skeleton was larger than the other. Okay, that fits. But a, a many of the bones are missing, including part of the smaller jawbone and all of the teeth from the larger one. Okay, and I mean basically people just glommed onto this and and assumed that they had found the two little boys because in in richard the third the play and also just sort of in the history um we neglected to mention this part but uh before the princes disappeared they were kept in the tower supposedly for their own safety um since they were heirs to the throne but once their illegitimacy had been declared they disappeared so yeah, the idea that their yeah. bodies so might have been nobody found. saw them in public anymore, right? And so one of the major criticisms of this examination in 1933 is that they went in saying like we're going to go look at these bones of the two princes. So those are the those are the bones of the allegedly murdered alleged princes, and so there's a a a, a historian and researcher. Um, named John Ashdown Hill. He was involved in the the 2012 project to excavate uh, the remains of Richard III. So he released, I only found information from him and information citing him. Okay. That this was in 2016. And so new evidence, the bones of the princes in the tower show no relationship to Richard III. Okay. So and no genetic match. Well, no, that's not what he said. Oh. So so they when they did x-rays and examinations of Richard III's remains, they saw they looked at the they looked at his dental records and he had well, no congenitally missing teeth. They looked at his teeth. They didn't look at his dental records. They didn't have them. I mean they had they they made those records and then they looked at them. Yes, I'm 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 looking at the X-ray right now. So he had no congenitally missing teeth, but um, according to the princes in the tower, I'm using quotes air yep. quotes here. Okay, um, those craniums uh, expressed hypodontia, so that's where you have fewer teeth than you're supposed to and that doesn't include wisdom teeth there are some populations that are that never have wisdom teeth but so the wisdom teeth don't factor into it so that's the third molar 
So the the two child skeletons ha- exhibited hypodontia. Right. So, but Richard did not. Dicky three sticks, little Dicky three sticks. He had all his teeth in all all the right places. And Dr. Ashdown Hill says that this is evidence that they could not be related. And so it must have been somebody else. I would like someone who knows more about this stuff than we do to explain to me why that has to be the the nail in the coffin for those two, those well, three individuals a few people, being related. A few people in the comments were like, well, I don't have it, but my nephews do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it seems to be so the, the causes for hypodontia are many. And and some of them are associated with like inherited traits. Um, others aren't. They can have like it's more common in twins. And so they, the studies say that um, perhaps it also has something to do with the environment in which they were developing in the womb. So it could be if there's that they have if they if they're exposed to certain substances or if there's an absence of something so there have been studies around that and and it's also it's it's something that doesn't seem to be super well studied um so i mean the upshot of all this is there are two bodies or two skeletons from the tower where those boys were said to have been killed that kind of match but maybe don't and we don't really know yep and we don't know um if we we don't know that they were two little boys. That's true. We don't That's know true. The, me- the method of 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 death. We don't know when they died. We don't know. We don't know anything about their identity. <laughs> we know lots of things. Hopefully, this is not your first episode of the dirt. <laughs> well, let's go back to good old Dicky Three Sticks, Richard One Two Three. Yeah. Why? So, why is everyone obsessed with this guy? And yeah, what's his deal? Right. So there's this whole society dedicating to reassessing his reputation. I My mean, God. I mean, like, like the Richard III Society, right? The, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They commissioned yeah. the so, excavation. Right, yeah. Um, so it was founded during the summer of 1924. This, and this is coming from the Richard III Society website. Um, found in 1924 by a Liverpool surgeon, Saxon Barton. <laughs> And a small group of his friends, and they were all enthusiastic amateur historians with a particular interest in the life and times of Richard III. Um, and it seems that what the what the Richard III Society is interested in is less Richard III and in uh, his life, and more the times. The more I read about them, the more into them I got. Where it's like, oh, you need to understand the environment in which he lived and his and sort of the sort of cultural milieu in which he was described. So yeah, like I mean, what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's very like respectable. That, yeah. And so Saxon Barton said, in my view, historical belief must be founded on facts where possible and on honest conviction. Okay. Pretty great. Yeah, that's good. Um, and they called themselves the Fellowship of the White <laughs> Boar. I know it's B-O-A-R, but yeah. like a bunch of old, but, <laughs> old-timey old white guys talking Tudor history. Like what more fellowship? other of- old-timey white. Yeah, no, it's like, oh, beautiful. Oh, the white boar. Um, I hope they knew that that's what they did. <laughs> I see what you did there, sirs. Um, and then a really depressing line comes next. Their activities inevitably declined with the onset of the Second World War. Oh, everybody died. But... In 1956, they resuscitated, and um, they formally reconstituted on a wider membership basis in London, and um, Dr. Saxon Barton died in 1957, and in 1959, it was renamed, so it stopped being the the Fellowship of the White Boar. No, no, it became the Richard III Society. Um, and then in 1980, they got a royal patron. You got to have one of those. The Duke of Gloucester. 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 Yep. Gloucester. Yes. In 1980, the Duke of Gloucester uh, agreed to become their patron, which is perfect timing since the quincentenary, the... <laughs> 
quincentennial. There we go. The quincentennial the, of the five hundred year anniversary. Yes. <laughs> of yeah, the five hundred year anniversary of Richard III's reign uh, was in 1983. So perfect time. Okay. Great. 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 Um, cool, so cool, they cool. were able to observe that, and there were. Um, exhibitions at the National Gallery and like a variety of things to sort of like consciousness raising about this <laughs> short, his short reign. Um, and so under what they do, uh, the society consider that Richard III and his alleged misdeeds need to be evaluated within the context of the period in which he was living. Morals and behavior were radically different to our times, and it is necessary, therefore, to examine the period of Richard III rather than just the person. Which, I mean, sort of, <laughs> I get. I that, mean, yeah. But also, so, like, murder this gets isn't into the issue in any time, right? Period. And so, right. What was it like to be Richard III? <laughs> was he, or would he have been, given longer on the throne, a good king? And what is a good king anyway? I, Which that's a lot. Are these, these are like absurd questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> we definitely don't know who the two princes, the alleged two princes are, because the Church of England will not grant access to exhume their remains. Oh, for DNA testing and stuff? Yeah. So we could DNA test them. So we could figure it out. Um, but at this point, uh, I let them rest, you know? Under, yeah, understandably, they're like, no, we aren't going to exhume them because is it a slippery slope into just exhuming everybody that we want to say is or isn't legitimate or whatever and just like let it go. Yep. Um, I agree. Which is definitely something that I can get behind. Mm -hmm. So there's all these kings, all these kings and queens and things. Um, we've got Oswald of Northumbria. Ozzy. Yeah. Um, he, he died in 642. Oh, that's why I know nothing about him. Yeah, definitely. Um, but that's, so there's that's an article here I wouldn't from like the, to know about him. Yeah, no, there's an article here from the independent that just sort of like a roundup of, um, pre, I think almost all pre 1066 royalty in Britain and which is, which is great. Oh, and, gosh, and 1066 I... is the magical date at which the the battle of Hastings occurred and the Saxons and the Normans fought and the Normans won and Saxon England was no longer Saxon England. And there was a big cultural change. Okay. Moving on. Oh no. And then, um, nine Uh-huh. Oh gosh. Why did I, oh, why did I start? Because now there's so many consonants. Um, oh, is it like Ethel for the, it's like Edgith. <laughs> Yeah, so until Oswald's bones are located, the oldest identified remains of any English or British royalty are those of a woman, Edith, daughter of King Edward the Elder. <laughs> and they're not even in England. So she's buried in Germany. Her tomb is in Germany. Interesting. And in 2008, it was um, opened, and isotopic tests confirmed that they were hers, which I'm assuming means that they were from yeah, you can test England. using using usually strontium, the element. Uh, yeah, and no, right, right. You know, like where the water she drank, mm -hmm. it's, it comes in through the water, right? And it, it's deposited in your teeth and in your bones. Yep. And it can show and you so that's, where you spent sort of the first 10 years of your life. Yeah. And so I'm assuming that that's what they're talking about, that like these remains were not from Germany. They were from Britain. England. England. Wherever this is. Um but what's puzzling is that not all of her was actually in the lead casket. Oh. And um, her hands and feet were missing and oh. most of her skull. Yeah. And, but she, and which like, that's very relic-y. That's the sort of thing that people yeah. take as holy relics. But she wasn't a saint. Well. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, so speaking of 1066. Yep. Here's a guy we don't know where he is. Uh, Harold, Harold. Harold Hadrada. Yep. Is that his full name? I think so. Um, he's the guy in the the, the Bayou Tapestry. Bi Bayou. Bayou Tapestry. <laughs> oui. uh, the one where everybody's like, and it says Harold, uh, which it, I it does say Harold. And he's like, my eye, because there's an arrow in it. Yeah. And it says like arrow. <laughs> it's just like, oh, thanks. Look, they like to label um, everything just no, so no, no, you but, it, but also... I read, I think I learned in art history at some point 
it's one of the first instances of like narrative in art from this region. It's the first instance of like showing a timeline and things happening over time. Right. That's what I with... meant. Like a like a linear narrative. Yes. It is. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah, I really I love Great. the biotapestry um for lots of reasons. Many of them historical, most of them comical. Yeah, no, because it's just oh. Um Margaret, a victim of the Norman Conquest. Um is another person uh, that that we haven't found. Mar- Queen Margaret. Queen and Margaret. then there's okay. um Lulan Upgrafud. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I also don't know how to pronounce Welsh names, but I think it's Llewellyn. And oh then, my gosh. And then <laughs> Ap Griffith, it's like that's the son of Ap Griffith, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. So I don't know. Welsh Welsh <laughs> person. It's a Welsh person. Um yeah. And so um his head ended up on a pike at the Tower of London. Oh which boy. Is the place to be. But not a place and you want to be. It's just a place where it w- lots of people ended up. <laughs> um and it remained there for more than a decade. Ooh, gamey. Um, but they don't know where the rest of him is and he was the last independent welsh ruler and that was in 1282 that went well for him Um, i see but then moving into a more global stance yes please there's a (laughs) here's some people that you and i have heard of uh yeah so i was just trying to think of like have we found i mean that many there was that brief shining moment where the internet thought we found alexander the great and then wanted to to drink him that one guy in that Facebook group. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, where's Attila the Hun? Where's Genghis Khan? Where's... Yeah. So that's uh... that's who that's who's on this list. So um, looking for the... Um, for Queen Nefertiti. Yes. Um, looking for uh, Boudicca. Yeah. Well, People she... People are looking for I mean, her. She took her own life and then who knows what happened to her body. You exactly. Know? Who knows? Um, Alexander the Great, um, Alfred, King of Wessex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the, I mean, sort of one of the first kings of England when England wasn't cohesive yet. Okay. Okay. Um, Genghis Khan. Is it Genghis? Um, Have I been saying it? it? Genghis? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the the G is the one that has the H on it. Oh, so it would be Gehengis, but it's just a G, so it's Genghis. Okay. I'll try and say that correctly now. Um, yeah, so people um, don't know where he's buried, and there's like a lot of sort of mythos around his burial. Involving killing um, baby camels, so we don't have to talk about it. And also killing anybody who was around that may have seen it. Yep. So there's a reason for that. It's that he doesn't want to be found, so we should leave it alone. Right, exactly. Um, and then also Atahualpa, the last yeah. Inca emperor. Don't know where he is. Um, and Kamehameha. Oh, Kame- uh, King first. Kamehameha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, was he the, the last king of Hawaii before- Before queens happened. We invaded? Before queens? Okay. Yeah, because I think um, the last ruler of Hawaii was a queen, although I right, could yeah. very much be yeah, getting that wrong. Because he ruled until 1819. Yeah. So I was just thinking, like, is that the point where- we screwed they it up. They got yeah. colonized. I think so. And I, she and so I I think the queen was in power until we annexed them as a state. I think that's true Is also. That correct? Okay. Right. And then hey, um listeners please, write in if you know someone help us. Like that's I mean, <laughs> really... we will happily do episodes about Hawaiian history, but for now we are oh my God, seriously yes. under underinformed. So we love having information from listeners and friends so anytime yeah and i will gladly tell you about all of the kings listed on the sumerian king list and like the neo-assyrian empire but like i don't know i mean hey if you want that i will give that to you but one other person they have listed here is tecumseh oh hey yeah yeah um which is I don't know if ruled is the right word. No, but he governed. Or, he governed yeah, yeah, yeah. a, a no, group yeah. of... Yeah, but it is... It's very, like... This This list puts it together in, like, a very, like, monolithic, like... Oh, yeah. Monarchic yeah, fashion. Yeah. But, yeah, and so it's just... Yeah, so I've been trying to think of people whose remains we found. And the one that I can think of is um, Amir Timur, Tamerlane. Yes. 
which I've seen parts of him, which sounds weird. I've seen Galileo's um, finger. I was going to tell you about my time I spent at the Amir Timur Museum and how it was amazing. Please tell me. But that's, <laughs> but that's awesome that you saw Galileo's finger. Um, but in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan, there's a whole museum dedicated to Amir Timur, who is the sort of like the spiritual. Um, like So he's sort of like the, um, what is it, the progenitor of like Uzbek identity. The, the um, granddaddy and, of Uzbeks. And so after the Soviet Union collapsed – um, and rather than doing what other states do, what other authoritarian states do and have a cult of personality around the leader, um, Uzbekistan kind of built up a cult of personality around Amir Timur because he's already dead. And like you, you won't have like a weird vacuum afterwards. So he was um, known as Tamerlane by people all who kinds, can't like, pronounce stuff good. Yeah, right. And so uh as, as so you you hear about him in in history and he's very famous and he did quite a bit of conquering and there's a whole museum dedicated to him and his lineage. And my favorite thing about it is that he's got the sassiest eyebrows in every like is that the part of him you saw? I can't remember what it was that I saw. I think it it was like it was something like hair eyelashes or something that I saw. But there's all these things from the uh, funerary complex of his, and so it's a lot of stuff around like from his his life. But there are all these portraits, and all of these portraits are just like him like cocking his eyebrow, and I'm just <laughs> like, oh, yeah. So it's like very very sassy. Uh, but his tomb is famous for another reason. Go on and. Um, Oh, I see that eyebrow. It was so, right. <laughs> You're like, oh. Um, so his. Let me. Okay, I'm gonna look this up so I get it right. So um, he was he was buried at Goryamir. Uh, which is like a, a whole funerary complex right outside of Samarkand. It w- yeah. So he would. So there was this. Um, yeah, had a curse. You know your usual curse. Yeah. And so he was exhumed in 1941. Why? He was he was a huge deal. This was Samarkand was like a is it still is like um, a lot of archaeological inquiry because it was so big on the Silk Road and it was just this sort of at this crossroads of civilizations and all these reasons that it's very famous. Um, and so the the Russians, well, Soviets, because it was 1941, um, they were excavating at Goryamir, and. The, there's an inscription on the tomb that threatens great misfortune to anyone who disturbs his rest. And yeah. this guy, Mikhail Gerasimov, he was the guy in charge. Uh, he was an anthropologist. He oversaw the, the exhumation. And this was in 1941. And you know what happened the next day? Ooh. The German invasion of the Soviet Union. Operation Barbarossa. Isn't that bonkers? Curses. Okay, well, this was we should, fun. Yeah, this was this a, was, this was a, a good one and uh, humbling. But yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. So I, when I was little, I loved the the Middle Ages. Like I was obsessed with knights and castles. But you know, not so much a scholar. I, like I, I got, I read everything I could get my hands on. But there was not so much a lot of retention. Uh, I was, was it just like in it for real, the stories, like real stuff. Yeah, well, you know, kids' or versions like, of of abridged. What, no, like, I mean, not like you. All week, I've been texting you. Like, was this real? Uh, well, yeah, so, and so it like, wasn't. Was it, I mean, yes, it was King Arthur and all of that, not real. But yeah, it was also like histories of of the kings and queens, and there's you know lots of stuff about Eleanor of Aquitaine and you know the the Plantagenets and the Tudors and yeah, I had I friends just, that were really into this stuff, and I it just like I totally missed it. I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this episode know stuff about what we've said. Like probably know more about this topic. Probably. Than than um certainly before I started reading about it. But yeah, it's just and I'm I'm used to having this experience studying like when I was in school, I studied populations and traditions and things that were from the other side of the world that I had I didn't grow up with any connection to. And so I just would like constantly like stumble across something that there's this like very very deep and dense well of information about that 
everybody I was interacting with, like they knew about it and it was just sort of like old hat to them. And it's, it, it's kind of refreshing and, and fun to, to stumble upon that where it's, it's stuff that I could have just as easily known all of this because it was, there were people around me growing up that knew all of this. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it was a combination of that, that sort of deep wellspring of what? I didn't know that. But also just sort of a rekindling of everything that I was obsessed with as as a 10-year-old. And so seeing some of the names pop up as I was researching, it was just like, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) I missed you. So that has been episode 11, Little Dicky Three Sticks. Yeah. Um, Thank you for listening. And if you are Thanks for making to the end of this episode. Yeah, thanks. Gosh. Uh, You sure are. We got there eventually. You really hung in there. If you are listening to The Dirt and enjoying it, the best thing you could do for us to help us continue to do what we're doing is to rate and review us on Apple, uh, the podcast app, and elsewhere, and tell all your friends about us. We are completely independently funded by by, by ourselves and by our wonderful uh, Patreon contributors, so any word-of-mouth publicity that, that we can get, we're thrilled with yeah we're um we're a little podcast on the grow aren't we um and it's all because of you guys this is just amazing that that people listen to us yeah we hit four thousand listens this week yeah yeah i know we just were like oh we hit three thousand and then we hit four thousand so that was wild it's like amazing how (laughs) numbers increase like that um and and so also um really hope you, you guys seem to like the bonus episode that we put out last week, which it was fun to be able to share that with you. Yes. Um, we're going to have another bonus up coming up. Mm-hmm. And um, nestled in among those sweet, sweet facts we'll be feeding you, um, we're going to have a few announcements about where we're headed. And we're excited. Um, yep. And we got some stuff. We've got some stuff in the pipeline. And um, we're going to we're gonna share some some exciting things that we have up our sleeves. Oh, it's going to be so good. Yeah. So keep a, keep an ear out for that. Yeah. And um, as as you may know, um, you can find us on SoundCloud, um, iTunes, and your friendly local podcatchers. And you can follow us on Facebook. We're The Dirt Podcast. Yep. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And our new website, it's very shiny. It's thedirtpod.com. Yes. And yeah. if you want to write in, if you are a Tudor scholar or a, a, oh an English gosh. history scholar, or just if you know more about stuff than we do and you want to tell us about it, if you have episode <laughs> topic suggestions, you can write us an email at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Until next week. Thank you for listening. We love you. Yeah. Bye. Bye.